How are you? Good. Nice. Nice. Okay. First Samuel chapter 14 is where we're going to be this evening. Is everyone there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone need a Bible? Do we have any extra Bibles? They're around here somewhere. Hey, look at that. There's a whole stack of them. Delightful, unused Bibles. Okay. So, last week, uh, Sam began chapter 14, even though he told me to prepare for chapter 14. He took it from me because it's just that good. Uh, So we're going to do a little bit of a summary of it, and then we're going to get on to some of the other important points uh, in chapter 14. Quite the lengthy chapter. I don't know if we're going to be able to get through the entirety of it. We're certainly going to going to try this morning. We have a little bit more time than usual, but man, if I preach for an hour and five minutes, you're just going to be, you know, taking up stones and you know, gnashing your teeth and pulling out your hair. It's going to be sackcloth and ashes all over the place. So let's not do that. Um, but if you remember from last week, if you were here last week, the Philistines came out against the Israelites and they were uh, great and mighty and fear seized Israel. And they begin to flee in their presence. And here stands uh, the, the Philistine army and they have chariots and they have swords and they're impressive and terrifying. And then here stands the Israelite army <clears throat> And they have uh, sharpened farming utensils. And uh, when you took your farming utensils to be sharpened, do you know who you would take them to? A fun little factoid. Because the Israelites didn't have iron working, you know, in their culture yet. So they would need to take them to the Philistines, right? And these would maybe be used as weapons. You know, you're taking them to the enemy. So how sharp do you think they made those farming utensils? So, right, I mean, this is, this is what they come out to battle with. They come out to battle with weapons prepared by their enemies, right? So this isn't a good situation. They only have two swords in the entire nation, and uh, those swords belong to Saul uh, and Jonathan, right? They're the only two guys that are actually uh, equipped for battle. And in droves, they just begin to go home, right? They walk out, they see the Philistines. Philistines just look terrifying, and they just say, you know, uh, forget about this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go home. This is a sad situation. Even Saul seems to have lost his nerve, and he's sitting under a pomegranate tree. And you know, I don't know what he's doing there. It just seems like he's snacking, you know. And and he doesn't know what to do. It's just a, it's just a bad time all over. And you know, he knows that this is a battle that he basically can't win. So he sits under a tree and has a snack. As nation's falling apart, you know, there's juice running down his face. And Israel's running, and, um, and, and all the while Jonathan is thinking. And, and uh, he says to his armor bearer, you know, what if God wants to do something in this situation? Uh, there in verse 6, you, know, you can see what he says specifically. He says, you know, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It says, perhaps God will act on our behalf. And it's this what if moment. There is no uh, certainty in this situation. He just kind of has this idea, well, what if God wants to do something, you know? And that's a novel thought. It was really revolutionary thinking for the nation of Israel at this moment in their history. Uh, And it's sad that that's revolutionary thinking, but it was. Everyone is holding the line, and they're looking, you know, down their down their rake and shovel at a very real enemy, and they're contemplating the idea of a strictly theoretical God, and that's what God was to them. They knew the enemy was real, but God existed only in theory. And Jonathan said, "No, wait, our God is as real as our enemy. The only difference is that our God is immeasurably greater." than our enemy. And if he wants to do something, it doesn't matter if there's a lot of them and a little of us. It doesn't matter if they have, you know, swords and chariots and we have rakes and shovels. 
It, it, none of that matters because we have God. So it can be a thousand to one, and that shouldn't matter to God because he's God. You don't need to fear an enemy like the Philistines when you have a God like Jehovah. And so he, sends, he sets out, and, and it's, I think that we do maybe a disservice to this passage. And I don't want to spend too much time here because, of course, this is all stuff that Sam went over last week. But he didn't set out haphazardly to go attack the enemy. He set out very strategically. The Bible even goes out of its way to tell you how he how he planned this attack. He positioned himself between two cliffs. And and so you, you can take on an army of a thousand if you're funneling them through a cliff. And I say you because I know I couldn't do it. I mean, it doesn't matter what I have. An army of two would be enough to, to you know put me aside. But Jonathan, I mean, here's a guy, and he knows how to use his sword, and he, he positions himself right in this tight passage. And so this massive army is useless because they can't get around him, they can't get behind him, they can't crowd him, they can't tackle him, they have to come at him single file. And so he positions himself in this strategic spot, and he says, okay, God, if you want to do something, Go ahead and do it. I'm going to give you the opportunity to prove yourself great on behalf of this nation. And that's exactly what God does. And it's this great step of faith that's rewarded instantaneously. Before he knows it, there's 20 people fallen dead at his feet. And it's hard work. And Sam talked about that. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, he's climbing up on his hands and knees to accomplish this. And it's this wonderful point about how the work of God and the will of God isn't something that's necessarily cushy and, and you know, easy. It's not something that, you know, just descends from the heavenlies. And it's like, oh, it's all just, you know, sunshine and lollipops, you know, serving the Lord. It's hard work. And he sets out to do this hard work, but he sets out to do it as a co-laborer with, with Christ. And, and this is a wonderful thing uh, to consider. And, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about uh, Jonathan because he creates this, this type. And it's a type of a man that, that is living for God. And then we're going to talk about the rest of the nation, Saul specifically, because he creates a type of those that talk about living for the Lord. And there's a distinct difference between the two. And and even as I was driving down here, you know, to, to share this with you this evening, I just kept on thinking, well, well, which one am I? And I would like to say, you know, and I think we would all like to say that we're the Jonathans. We're the ones that just, we know God, we believe in God, and God puts something on our hearts. And it's like, let's get out there and do this. You know, I'm going to position myself strategically. I'm going to take on the enemy. I'm going to slay 20 of them in a split second. But I think it's easy, and it's a trap that we fall into very comfortably to become the people that just sit under pomegranate trees and talk about God, talk about what God can do, talk about how God's capable, and talk about you know the ideas surrounding a theoretical God rather than really setting out believing in a real God. And and this is this is where. We're going to pick up the story. We're going to pick it up in verse 14 as we kind of analyze uh, strategies for justifying spiritual stagnation. And it begins in verse 14, what our portion, and it says, In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp uh, and field, and those in the outposts, and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. You know, Jonathan is doing what only a man of God or a woman of God uh, can do. He's he's embarking on this this journey of faith. He's doing what what we as a body ought to do as we set out to serve God. He's boldly engaging the enemy. And as he does that, God does what only God can do. God ensures victory. It's this whole co-laboring idea that 1 Corinthians 3.9 talks about. It's an idea that I think we're all familiar with is the Bible calls us fellow workers or co-laborers with Christ there in 1 Corinthians 3.9 again. And, and God 
and, and this is the idea of it. I mean, Jonathan, he's sitting back and he's looking at, at all these enemies and he's thinking, well, what if God wants to do something? And, and you can extend that point and think, well, God could do anything. I mean, dismiss the idea, what if God wants to do something? God could have taken all the Philistines out by himself. Right? He could have ripped open heaven and you know, just shown his horrifying glory to the to the Philistines, and that would have been enough. I can't imagine that he would have need to to needed to even say anything. Now, if I was a Philistine and just looked up and the sky ripped open, you know, and I don't even know how sky rips open, but if it, that happened and God could do that, because God could do anything, you would see that and you would go, "I'm going home." You know, I mean, that's that's it. I mean, what do you what do you do to that? I wouldn't even. How do you fight that? I mean, you have a sword and the sky is torn asunder. And God's just standing there looking down at you like, you know, you're a banana head. What are you doing standing up against me? Uh, I, would, I would just go home, you know, and, and, but he doesn't do that. And he never, he never sets out about, you know, his work in, in this manner. He, he, does, he does this. He sets the job before you. He sets the job before me. He sets the job before us to partner with him uh, corporately and as a body. And, and, and it, because it, this is what's really important to him. And it's not the task necessarily. It's us individually. That's what's really important to God. And, and we elevate the job, but the job is easy for God. The job is something that he could take care of in a moment, in an instant. It's you, it's me, it's investing in us that's important. It's cultivating that relationship that only can be done when you partner with someone, when you work with someone, when you learn uh, to trust them and you see the significance of them. You know, I think about my dad whenever I think of this idea. And my dad is an incredibly handy guy. I mean, he's He's a guy like like Val and like Keith and and, and like these these men that I admire that can just kind of do anything with their hands and I I'm not like that I can I can hold books with my hands that's all that they do you know it's like and and my dad I, he, he comes down and we have a leaking faucet and I'm looking at this thing and it's just a mystery of the universe to me and I don't know where to start with that thing and I don't know if it's something in the part that the water comes out. I don't even know what you, is that a spout? I'm sure that's, yeah, there you go. A gentle condescending nod. Thank you. (laughs) Or if it's something down below in the plumbing or whatever it is, but my dad will come over and he'll look at it. And I know that he could fix it in, in an hour or less than an hour. And, and for me, when we, I had to replace our faucet and I, and I thought, well, I'm a homeowner. I can take care of this. It was all day. And that's just a faucet. It was an all-day project for me. And my dad, he could, he could just knock that thing out. It's not a problem to him. It's not even a thought to him. But, but to me, it's, it's trials and tribulations. And, and, but he comes down, and, and where he could easily just fix it, he could easily just take care of it, he partners with me in doing it so that I learn how to fix it. And, and since you know I, I, I have become a homeowner, I, I've been able to uh, to see this progression as we move through the house and and you know take it project by project because when you have a house that's 120 years old, even something like a faucet, uh, it becomes uh, something like we need to remove this wall and uh, there's no access to your plumbing anywhere, so let's knock out the side of your house. Um, so, I mean, it, but, but I've been able uh, to see my dad work, and he's been able uh, through this to spend time with me, to invest in me, to pour into me, and to impart these things to me. I've learned that he's someone that I can always turn to. I've learned that he's someone that I could always look to for assistance and help in these things. And that's what God wants us to go through as we're co-laboring with him through these things. These aren't something where you would look at it and you'd say, this is, this is terrible. God, do this. This is something where you should look at and go, this is terrible. And God says, okay, do you trust me? Now let's, let's do this together. And that's, and that's what he's doing here with with Jonathan, they're sharing this work, and nothing pleases God more than sharing a work with his with his children. Um, and and it's so God, it's as if in this passage and in verse fifteen specifically, is so excited by this simple uh, moment of faith 
that he begins to shake the very ground underneath their feet. You know, God's just, he's thrilled that someone stopped looking at a big enemy and got their focus fixated on a great God. It's this second Chronicles 16, nine moment. And I'm sure it's a verse that you're all familiar with. It's probably one that's already highlighted in your Bibles, but if it isn't, then, then it should be. Second Chronicles 16, nine. It says, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And this is what our God wants. And this is what we see him do here. You know, he's looking all over just to find someone whose heart says, I believe in you and I know what you can do. I know what you're capable of. And he ensures that this type of faith will not go unrewarded. So while all of this is happening, this becomes our question. This becomes kind of the thesis of our time together. Uh, What is the nation doing? And, And we see these two men, they're taking on an entire army, but behind those two men is a nation and they're and they're hiding and they're sitting under pomegranate trees and they're having snacks and and they're hiding in in caves. They're joining the enemy lines. We're going to consider what the nation begins to do when God starts his work. In verse 16, it says, Saul's outlooks at uh, Gibba and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. And Saul said to the men who were with them, muster the forces and see who left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Is that my baby? I heard a, ooh. We just look at them for hours on end and make that sound. And, and, and so what are they doing, right? What, what does Saul decide to do? You know, God's doing this work. The ground's shaking. What's our course of action? Yeah, they start counting. And that's, that's such a bizarre thing to consider, right? This is, this is his go-to move. You know, and, and, and uh, you know, this, is, this is the moment. This is what you've been waiting for, right? God is, God is working. He's, he's doing stuff. And, and I think that we really need to put the picture together. I mean, Saul, Saul is the new king of Israel, right? And, he, and he, he just got caught. He really just got exposed as a coward, uh, in, in this passage. And I think that this is something maybe that's, that's missing quite often in the interpretation of this passage. And, and right, he's sitting around and he's, he's snacking, right? He's on the potato or he's on the couch eating potato chips. Is that type of situation? Well, he should be out serving God and he's got pomegranate juice running down his beard. And, 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 you know, he should be thinking, wait a minute, why am I afraid of these puny enemies? God, God's done this before. God can do this again. God, uh, we, we have a powerful, awesome, wondrous God. There's nothing to fear. Puts down the pomegranate, gets out there, attacks the enemy. This, this person, uh, this missing person, whoever it might be, has now done what the king should be doing. And now Saul needs to pretend like he's still the leader of Israel. Right, So this isn't the moment to jump up and say, well, we need to run into battle because that would be following. And Saul, he's supposed to be the one that's leading. So he doesn't say, well, God is working. God's giving the enemy into our hands. Let's get out there and join in. He says, everyone stop. Right? Let's use the buddy system. Uh, I'm going to call roll. When you hear your name, just say present. If you could raise your hand, it might be helpful. Uh, that's what they always did in school. Right, so he, he gets all the way to the end, and there's two people that are missing, and it's his son, Jonathan, and the boy's armor bearer. And, uh, and, and I contend that it's at this very moment that Saul uh, begins to have it out for Jonathan, for his own son. We'll see this later, uh, con- and it seems to be confirmed in this passage. Uh, and, but let me ask you this, you, you parents, and there's several of you here, all right? Uh, you just discovered, right? Put yourself in Saul's shoes. You just discovered that your son uh, is behind enemy lines. He's taking on a hostile army, essentially by himself. And, and you can help. You have at your disposal 
the nation of Israel, right? <laughs> Entire nation. It's not like you, you can just call up your buddies, right? It's not like I, you know, I have at my disposal like Gil or something, and I give Gil a call and Gil would come and help me out. No, you have a nation behind you, and your son is behind enemy lines. You could send hundreds to his aid. What do you do? Do you help him out? No. No. That would be terribly uh, spiritually immature and idiotic. We need to look to Saul to see wise counsel in this text. Because that's not what you should do. And I'm so glad I'm here to help you, parents. Um, so this is, this is, if you're in that scenario, this is what you do. And starting in verse 18, Saul said to Abijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was uh, with the Israelites. And while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So the action's getting more intense while he's doing all this. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hands. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went into battle. And this is, and we're going to stop right there in the middle of verse 20, because this is when he finally decides to help his son. He already determined that this is his son that's out there. His son is out there against an entire army. And, and they got one sword and it's one guy and his buddy is standing behind him. He's the armor bearer. <laughs> Right? So he's not fighting. It's just Jonathan. He's out there. And, and you know, join the work of God? Uh, no, no, let's not do that. Let's, uh, let's, let's bring out the ark and let's have a prayer meeting. Let's have a board meeting. And this is, this is what he decides to do. And, and maybe it's, he, he wants to punish his son for shaming him spiritually and, and as the leader of the country. And, and maybe he was hoping that as he waited, as he delayed, uh, that his son would fall in battle and he would prove to the nation of Israel, well, this is why you need me. This is why you shouldn't take such steps of faith. This is why you should trust in your king. This is, after all, why you chose me as your, as your king. And trusting in God will lead you into folly. Trust in me. And we'll spend our days, you know, sitting under a pomegranate tree. And this would be his mantra. This would be what he would promulgate amongst his people. And, and notice everything uh, Saul does. And you can read it there in verse 18 for yourself. You don't trust me. Would appear very spiritual. Right? This is all very spiritual stuff. This is stuff that you would look at, Saul, and you would say, oh, well, you are a wise, godly man. And I know you. You're all good, you know, good saints. You would say, well, bringing out the ark, consulting God, let's talk to the priests. These are good things, right? None of this is a bad thing. And God is, God is doing something great, and the work is at hand. The ground is shaking, and the enemy is falling, and, and this is a move of the Spirit. And so what do you do? And he would say, well, let's see what we can learn about the supposed work of God before we jump into it, All right? And this sounds, this sounds familiar, right? At least this should if you've been in the church for any length of time. And, and God is shaking the ground under another community of believers. And God isn't shaking the ground under us as a community of believers. And, well, let's stop. Let's take stock of where we are and, and who we are and let's consider who they are and should we join the work? Let's bring out the ark first and let's consult God. Let's pray on this. Well, should we move? Shouldn't we move? Well, we should definitely pray before we move. And that's wise. Let's be prudent here. And, and you would say, well, you're a, you're a godly man, Saul. Well, that's that's exactly what you should do. And he would say, well, I know. That's why you chose me as king. And then he goes, well, now let's consult the priests. Well, this is wise counsel. We have the ark, so we're consulting God. Well, now let's consult the, the, the priests. These are godly individuals. They know a lot about God. They know the heart of God. And I can imagine the conversation they might be having. They might be praying and saying, well, God, is this your will? What would you have us to do, Lord? Would you have us to go out? Would you give the enemy into our hands? Will you bless this work? I mean, isn't this the prayer that you pray before you set out to accomplish the will and work of God? 
God already is doing this. God already is giving this into your hands. God has already ensured the victory. He is quaking the very earth beneath your feet. He is so thoroughly delivering. You don't need to pray about that. I can imagine the conversation that he would be having with these priests. You'd say, well, what do you guys think? What is our, what's our best course of action as we move forward in the will of God? What's our five-year plan for this attack? And, and let's line up all the figures and see if everything makes sense before we set out. And it doesn't make sense. And it'll never make sense. Look at their military. Look at your military. Look at their weapons. Look at your weapons. Look at how many of them there are. And look at how two guys are destroying them. That doesn't make sense. Right? And it's, it, it's not supposed to make sense. Right? But God is doing a work. And it's undeniable. You need to stop counting. You need to stop. You need to stop praying. Right? And that's a scary thing to say in church. Right? You need to stop You need to stop having board meetings because God is working. He's doing it right now. And listen, just because we're we're afraid or our pride is wounded, it's easy to spiritually contemplate. It's easy to to spiritually postulate and, and, and to be the guy that talks about the work of God. Right? To be the gal that analyzes the work of God and, and to, to be the person that writes books either approving or condemning the work of God rather than the one that actually gets out there and does the work of God. Right? And listen, don't get me wrong, none of these are bad things. It's not Prayer isn't a bad thing. Board meetings, they aren't bad things, even though I rarely actually attend them. It's not because I don't value them. I just, I get off work so late. Uh, and, and getting godly advice isn't a bad thing. Considering your resources before you embark, uh, you know, on, on a venture of faith isn't a bad thing either. There's a time for all that. This isn't the time for that. It's not, it's not now in this passage. And, and I think we do all of these things, listen, because our goal isn't to prep for the work. And I think that this is a big point of this. I, I don't think that he was doing this to prepare himself for the work of God. He wasn't having, you know, the ark brought out and praying to God and meeting with priests and, and considering, you know, their resources and doing all this. He wasn't doing this to prep for the work of God. And I think that's the excuse that we often give when we do these things, he was doing it to spiritually justify his lack of activity. So I'm not doing that, but look, I'm doing, doing this. And he appeared godly, even though inwardly he was a coward and he was only seeking to justify his cowardly behavior. So let's study the work. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. And everyone would look on and they would say, oh, well, you're doing the right thing. And people might look on us and say, well, you're doing the right thing. And we may very well be right here where we want the image of Saul more than we want the work of Jonathan. And that's really what what I kept on thinking about as I was driving down here tonight. And maybe, maybe if that's all, you know, that comes out of tonight, maybe that would be a worthwhile thing to think about. What do we really want in our Christianity? Do we want the image of Saul or do we want the work of Jonathan? Do we want everyone to perceive us as someone that's godly and someone that's that, that's that's serious and someone that's really really in line with the will and work of God or do we actually want the work of God because i think it's enough for most of us to to have people look at us and go oh well they're a godly saint oh well they're they're so serious and 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 all this and so on and so forth and and, and but we need to let go of that and Jonathan, in this text, you're to see how he completely dismisses all of that, and he's even willing to give up his own life just to further the work uh, of God. We need to let go of that, and we need to just take some steps of faith. 
I'm not saying don't pray about things, but let's ask ourselves some very serious questions tonight. All right, here they are. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a few of them. Did God ever say to Jonathan, this is my will? Because this is the big hang-up of the church today, right? I think that many Christians spend the entirety of their Christianity seeking God earnestly, just like Saul. And they're going, God, we just want your will. This is all we want. And, and I've seen you know, many talking about you know, and asking this question for the last 10 years of their Christianity, and they very well may die asking this very question. And that's a terrifying thing to consider. Did God ever say to Jonathan, this is my will? No, he never said it. Now, here's the next question. Did this situation look like a clear, open door scenario for Jonathan? Right, because that's the other thing that I always hear Christians say when they're considering what it is that God wants them to do with their lives. Yeah, they're going, well, I'm just waiting for that open door. And when God tells me what to do, it's going to look like this is what God wants me to do. And God's, you know, I don't know what they're waiting for. They're waiting for a ticket in the mail to fly to some far off land that they've been praying about every day. Or they're waiting for someone to knock on their door and say, you know, uh, hello, tell me about Jesus and save my soul. And then we're going to go save the world. And I don't know what they're waiting for. I don't know what they're looking for. I don't know what an open door would appear like to you. But was this an open door for Jonathan? No, this was one man against a military. You can't, there's no way to, to, to reconcile that in your brain, to say that this would look like an open door. There's none of us that would be sitting here, you know, and we're, you know, holding a shovel going, I think that this is pretty obvious, right? Uh, my shovel is going to defeat that there army. You know, none of us would consider this an open door, but was it? Absolutely. This was God's will, and this was God's open door, and it didn't appear to be, right? This was something that they just looked at, and they said, this is a moment that God can prove himself strong. Why shouldn't I believe in that? Why, why shouldn't I take part in that? Why shouldn't I let God do what God wants to do, right? When you consider what God wants to do in this world, that's not a let's have prayer meetings, let's have board meetings, let's consider where we're going and what we're doing type of thing. This is what God already wants to do. He's waiting for you to be a part of that. Right? It doesn't have to appear perfect. It doesn't have to be something where he, he rents the heavens and comes down and says, you know, who will go for us type of thing. And you go, here I am, send me. That's probably not going to happen for you. It's going to be just like this. It's going to be a scenario where you see an opportunity to allow God to be God, and you just take it, right? And this is an awesome uh, thing that we see in Scripture, that, 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 that we can spend our time spinning our wheels, going through these spiritual exercises to, to justify our lack of activity, or, or we can say, I'm done with that. This isn't a moment for prayer. This isn't a moment for a meeting. This isn't a time to take advice. This isn't a time to count. This is a time to just go. And I should, and I should go because we're, we're never going to get through this passage if I don't. So continuing in verse 20, continuing in verse 20, they found the Philistines in total confusion and striking uh, each other with their swords. And those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines had gone up with them to their camp, went out to the Philistines who were with Saul and Jonathan, when all the Philistines who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. And so the Lord rescued Israel that day, and the battle moved on beyond Beth. Evan or Avon or however you say that word. And I love this passage. I, I don't like that word, but I love this passage because, because here you see the far reaching effects of faith, All right? The far reaching effects of faith. <laughs> you have two guys and they turned the nation back. And that's, that's a crazy thing to consider, right? The, you have all these Israelites and they were, they were Israelites, but they were hiding, you know, pretending 
uh, to blend in with the world. You have these guys coming out of the hills, coming out of caves. You have them coming out of hiding. And they were, they were Israelites, and they, were, they might be like us. They might be, you know, Christians, and, and, and we're going wherever we go, whatever we do. I don't know what you do out there in the world. And, and, but they're, they're, they're pretending, and they're saying, well, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm just a mountain. You know, don't, don't look at me. And they're just trying to blend in with the mountain. And all of a sudden, Jonathan steps out in faith. And God begins to shake the ground and it's a move of the spirit and he's working and he's doing and, and they say, I'm, I'm not a mountain anymore. I'm, I'm a man and I'm a man of God and I want to be a part of this work. And they set out to join it. But worse than them, you have these Israelites that had abandoned their brethren. And this is really a sad thing to consider. These guys that had switched sides and they joined the Philistines, right? I mean, this is a bad time. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know if you watch sports or something, but you see a game and, and the teams line up and, and you're looking down the linebacker or something. That's a thing, right? And, uh, and, and the guy looks huge and menacing and you take off your jersey and, you know, you put on one of theirs and you join the other side. And you're like, no one saw anything. I'm with these guys, and I don't want to get hit by that guy. And, and you know, but that's what they had done. And they were trying to blend in with the other side because they legitimately thought that this was the end of Israel. This is, this is it. We're all done as a nation. There's no point in standing beside her, so I'm going to join her enemy. And they come out uh, of hiding. And, and these other men come out of forsaking, and, and they, they see what it looks like to live for God uh, in Jonathan, in his armor bearer. And I think that that's what many are waiting to see in America. Many Christians that, that are in hiding, many Christians that have joined the other side. When they see someone that just stops talking about a theoretical God, they see someone that's actually living for a real one. And uh, because of the boldness of these, these two men, Jonathan and his armor bearer, you have uh, this multitude that is emboldened to take their own stand. Because faith, it really has this, this quality of being infectious. When you see it in someone else and you see what God can and will do through a life that is fully submitted, fully surrendered to him, you just, you want to be a part of it. You want to join in with it and, uh, and, but nevertheless, I got to continue. Verse 24. Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. How incredibly narcissistic. So none of the troops tasted food and the entire army entered the woods and there uh, was honey on the ground. And when they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Sounds appetizing. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. And he raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. And then one of the soldiers told him, your father bound the army under a strict oath saying, cursed be any man who eats food today. Uh, this, uh, that is why the men are faint. And Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. <clears throat> See how my eyes brighten when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would uh, have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines been even greater? All right, food is all over the ground, and you know it's, uh, they're running around fighting, and, uh, and it's just like, what? Wild honey. And God puts out this incredible spread for his people, and the moment tickled you. Went, what wild honey? And it's just—it's surprising, right? It'd be like it'd be like I'm, you know, preaching here, and all of a sudden, corn dogs start descending from the heavens. That would—that'd be glorious. And Corinne told me tonight we're having corn dogs, and that just sounds wonderful, right? And it's—but—but it, but this is what God does. This is how He's just taking care of His people. He's. He's, you know, it's a good job, dinner's on me type of thing. And it's an amazing picture of how God refreshes uh, his, 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 his servants. And uh, But Saul would have none of it. 
right? He made them swear that they would not be refreshed until the work was done, right? Now, there's some things to consider here, and this is, this is I don't know, maybe a tricky issue for the church, and, and so consequently, I, I talk about it frequently. Uh, <laughs> but God didn't put this on them, right? This isn't something that God said. This is something that Saul said. God wanted to meet their immediate needs, and he knew that if he did that, they would be more effective. They would achieve more on a long uh, term, uh, on their long term goals. All right? If I refresh you, give you a little bit of honey, you'll get out there and you'll slaughter some more of these Philistines, and that's a good thing. That doesn't sound like a good thing to us. It sounds terrible, but you know, it was for them, and these were their enemies. And so, but Paul or Saul—not Paul. Paul's a good guy. Saul put them under this oath, right? And 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 maybe Jonathan spoke out of turn. Right, and you can consider that, and maybe some people are sensitive to that and say, well, you know, this is his father, and this is his king, and he shouldn't have been so flippant in his words saying that his father and and the king had troubled the nation. And maybe that was inappropriate. Uh, But that's just another reason why I like Jonathan. I'm far more concerned about uh, the truth of the matter than I am about softening the truth of the matter. And, and the, the truth is that Saul was putting a burden on the nation that didn't help the work of God. It only hurt it. He added legalism to their mission. Right? Legalism, uh, put very simply, you know, it's a word that we're all familiar with, but for funsies, I decided to come up with a little definition for it is anything that God doesn't specifically require, but that we do, thinking that this thing will elevate us spiritually or manipulate God into blessing us practically. This is what legalism is, and this is why we do it, right? So it's kind of a twofold definition. It's it's anything that we do, you know, that God hasn't told us to do, but we think that it's going to elevate us spiritually. So people are going to look at us and go, oh my, he is so godly. Or it's going to manipulate God into blessing us practically. We're going to twist God's arm into going, okay, well, he's really going above and beyond. So I'm not just going to give him an A. I'm going to also give him a gold star, you know. But there's three things, right, to consider. There is nothing that you can add to God's requirements. It's actually incredibly arrogant for us to think that God's requirements are insufficient. So we need to add to them. And that's what legalism does. We say, well, God hasn't really done his job as thoroughly as he should have done his job. So I'm going to go ahead and add to it. If you really want to be godly, this is what you do. Right? Second, there is nothing that you can do that would make God love you any more than he already loves you. That's not only arrogant, that's insulting to God's character. So you say, oh, I'm going to do this, and God's going to see me in a special you know, and significant light. Well, that's insulting because God already sees us all in that special, significant light. You are special and significant to God. That's why he sent his son to die for you. And while you were still sinners, he did that. So if he loved you that much then, he's not going to love you anymore now. You know, there isn't another son that he can send to die for you. This is it. This is his perfect, overwhelming, wonderful, beautiful, heavenly love already fully manifest for you for me. There's nothing that you need to do to add to that, to fulfill that. And finally, <clears throat> there's nothing that you can do to twist God's arm into doing more for you, right? Because that's just a horrible manipulation of not only God's character, but of God's will, right? This decision hindered them in battle, and it burdened the nation of Israel. And now we're going to see uh, what happens to those that live under uh, legalism, because the consequences of this are uh, fairly uh, heavy and daunting. It's something that God definitely wanted to spare his people from by feeding them. Verse 31, we're going to continue. That day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Agilon, they were exhausted and they pounced on the plunder, taking sheep, cattle, and calves. They butchered them on the ground and ate them, together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. 
roll a large stone uh, over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and uh, eat them and do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone uh, brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had uh, done this. The first thing to consider as a consequence of legalism, there's going to be three of these, and I couldn't work a three-point message into the entirety of this thing, but I got three points here, so that's good. Uh, The first consequence of legalism is exhaustion. It's exhaustion. It is tiring to be a Christian the way some people say that you have to be a Christian. And it really is. And if we were being honest, we'd say that we've all been under that at one point or another in our Christianity, uh, where you're just in the midst of the battle and among the many things that you know are already upon you, you have someone else barking extra biblical orders at you, telling you what else you need to, to do and to be to be a real Christian. It's burdensome and it's exhausting. And they they say things like, well, if you really want to be a Christian, you'll do this or you'll do uh, that. And I still remember the look on a mature Christian's face when I, as a new believer, told him that I I listened to Bob Dylan, right? Which I'm sure you're all just, you know, aghast, you know, oh my, Bob Dylan, you know, and, and, but, but, but his face went flush and, and, you know, it was like, you, you're a Christian, and, 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 and I, I was, yeah, you know, I was, I, I understand, well, maybe why listening to like Marilyn Manson, you know, would be a bad idea as a Christian, but Bob Dylan, I mean, what has that guy done? He even has a Christian album out there, you know, it's like, it's, it's good times. Uh, it's not my favorite album, but <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. It's like, you know, while you're at it, as long as we're cleaning up that, let's talk about all these other things. And, and it's exhausting, right? And that's, that's how the nation is described when they're under legalism. They were faint. The second, legalism is counterproductive, right? That's the second thing we need to understand about legalism. You accomplish less for the Lord. I think a lot of, you know, very legalistic Christians think, well, I'm doing this so that I'm more productive as a Christian. You know, I'm going to remove all these obstacles uh, from my life so that it's just me and Jesus. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going all for it. All cylinders, they're running. I don't know a lot about cars, but that's a thing. (laughs) And it's like, but it's not true. You actually accomplish less for the Lord as a legalist. And I'll tell you why, because you have a divided attention and affection, you're dividing your attention and affection between being obedient to the will of God as much as you are to being obedient to the, 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 the will of man, right? And now you're serving these two masters, right? You're trying to do everything that you know man wants you to do, and you're trying to do everything that you know God wants you to do, and you're going to accomplish less. Jonathan looks at this whole uh, situation, this whole scenario, and he says, this was a huge missed opportunity. Because you were faint, you accomplished less for the Lord. This burden should have never been placed upon you. This kept you from running full out, chasing down the enemy and, and, and really uh, being more than a conqueror as, as Romans would call us, right? We've missed this opportunity because of legalism. He had divided attention. It's counterproductive. Now, third, the final consequence of legalism after exhaustion, after counterproduction is burnout and indulgence. And this is a scary thing to consider, right? They were so committed to keeping Saul's word that they neglected to keep God's. They said, we can't eat anything until the battle is done. And it's like, why? Why can't you do that? Well, because, you know, did God tell you to do that? No, Saul told us to do that. But, But then after the battle, they were so starved that they butchered and consumed animals with their blood still in them. And that sounds gross, right? But it's actually an infraction of God's law according to Leviticus chapter 3. God said you ought not do this. You ought to respect the blood of an animal. The, the, the life is in the blood. You're to honor the animal and the, your God that gave you this animal. So now 
in keeping uh, the law of man, you've broken the law of God because you wore yourself out. You were so burdened by keeping the law of man that you ended up falling into a trap and sinning against God. Now, there's something to consider here. <clears throat> I've been a Christian for uh, a little while. Uh, it's been about 12 years now. And, and in my, my short span of, of, of salvation, I've seen a distinct imbalance uh, in what we deem important infractions of Christendom, right? And, and you, you, I've been rebuked for not listening to Christian uh, music and for voting libertarian. During the last election, there was a Christian that took, took it very much so to heart uh, that that I I like some of the libertarian you know beliefs, all right? And some of you maybe are sitting here and you're going, well, you know, if you were really a Christian, you'd vote Republican, or if you were really a Christian, you'd vote Democrat. And I don't know which side you're on. I, I you know I I lean more that way. And and some Christians take that very seriously. They take it as seriously as their Bob Dylan. And you know what? I've been told never to touch an alcoholic beverage. You know, and I've uh, I've been told that there's an added, that there's an addendum uh, to that law, which tells me that that I should specifically avoid touching an alcoholic beverage in a public place. Specified component of that law is never in a restaurant. Never know who's going to be in that restaurant. <clears throat> when some people find out that I smoke a tobacco pipe from time to time, they lose their mind, right? They go, how? But you're a Christian, and Christians don't do those things. And I go, well, who says? And I love to say, well, Spurgeon did it, because they know Spurgeon. And then they go, oh, uh, Spurgeon, you know, and then they hate Spurgeon for the rest of their lives. <clears throat> But, you know, usually this conversation goes down a familiar avenue and a labored manipulation of scripture uh, to justify a law that is not law, right? And, and you may well do the same, and I might have offended some of you this evening, and I'm sorry if I did. Uh, but that's not in the Bible. That stuff isn't in the Bible, right? And some people live and die by these rules, Right? And they will keep them to the end of their lives and they feel justified by them. But such things aren't scriptural scriptural, and do not make us spiritual. Right? You need to consider that. These things aren't scriptural. They don't make us spiritual. Right? This is scriptural. Right? This is what makes us spiritual. And, and God has said this. God didn't say you, don't, you, know, you need to keep this fast. Uh, man did. And God didn't say, you know, don't listen to secular music or gamble and dance. You know, God, man did. But God did say, don't eat the blood of a beast. Right? God did say, don't covet. God did say, don't hate. God did say, don't look at another with lust in your heart. And you see someone driving down the road in like a 57 Chevy or something, and you've already broken two out of three. Right, you're coveting the car and you're hating the person driving it, right? And it's it's easy for us to dismiss those sins because, well, I don't drink in restaurants and I listen to nothing but but Hillsong, you know, and and I wear Christian T-shirts, so I know that I'm okay. No, listen, those things are the law of men. Don't put that on equal par, let alone try and use that as justification for things that you are doing that are actually sin. God has never said, thou shalt not order a beer in a restaurant. God has never said, thou shalt not pipe with thy bulldog in thy hammock. <laughs> right? Because that's just delightful. How silly, how silly and unnecessarily legalistic we can be. We burden people when God hasn't. God hasn't. And when we do, this is, this, is, this is the point of it. These are the consequences. When we do this to people, we exhaust them. We stifle their spirituality. We make it so that they can accomplish little in this life. 
because they spend their time trying to make you happy rather than thinking about what makes God happy. And then we lead them down a road where they devalue his word and end up sinning against it. Right? And that blood is on our hands because we put that on them. That's our gift to them. These are the fruits of legalism. It's a terrible thing to consider. But this is the type of Christianity that we have portrayed to America. The consequences are severe, just as they were with Israel. And the blood is on Saul's hands now. And of course, he takes none of the blame for it. We continue in... Should we continue? Yeah, we'll continue. Continue in verse 36. And Saul said... Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. And let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, shall I go after the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? And this is, this is a neat thing. But God did not answer him that day. And it shouldn't surprise us that God was silent right? Saul had sin uh, on, uh, on, his, on his hands and, and he did nothing to address it. So God's silence would be expected until it was addressed. In verse 38, Saul therefore said, come here, all of you who are leaders of the army and let us find out what sin has been committed today. <clears throat> as surely as the Lord who rescued Israel lives, even if it lies with my son, Jonathan, he must die. But not one of the men said a word. And you see, I think that this ties back to Jonathan, you know, showing himself to be a man that trusts God when his father doesn't. He was very quick to throw his son's name into this discussion. He said, even if it's my son, I'll kill this guy. He's still shamed uh, by him and trying desperately to appear spiritually superior to him. Uh, continuing in verse 40. Saul then said to all the Israelites, you shall stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, the men replied. And Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, give me the right answer. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot. And the men <clears throat> were cleared. And Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now must I die? I mean, that is the most absurd sentence in all of the Bible. I tasted honey. Should I die for that? And Saul's answer is astounding. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? who has uh, brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, he rescued him from his own father and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and they withdrew to their own land. And this part really shouldn't surprise us either. Um, it comforts, it comforts Saul's, right? These Saul's that are out there in the universe. It comforts Saul's to be critical of Christians. Uh, but what they really want is to condemn them. That's the goal, right? Uh, they're going to jump at the first opportunity to invalidate the man or the woman of God. Um, and everything that they've done in order to validate themselves and their own apathy. And as I was thinking about how to tie this whole thing together, uh, this is the thing that really saddened me about this passage. And because I think that this is true about the church today, and it's, it's, it's as true for, for me uh, at times in my Christianity as, as it is for Saul and, and on his you know, own sad journey as it is for many in the church today. When the church labors to tear down and condemn those that are expanding the kingdom of God, 
it's an indication that we've lost focus on who the enemy really is, right? When we care more about who is emergent and who is seeker-friendly than about evangelizing our community, there's a problem, right? Saul, he's, he's quicker to strike down his own son than he is to strike down the Philistines. And that's really frightening. And here's a man that he he knew that they were the enemy, but he was content to to sit passively under a pomegranate tree. But now his son has eaten a bit of honey, and he says, may God deal ever so severely with me if you do not die for this thing. And he was faster to strike down a man of God than he was to to go after the Philistines as stood against them to take over the nation and often were quicker to critique and to condemn Christians than we are to convert heathens. I think that's something that we all need to let sink in because I think that that's something that is all too common in the church today. And and, and when we find ourselves there, man, woe, woe is us. Our attention and our effort is in error and we are Saul saying you know what I might not be doing a lot uh, but those people and that person they're doing it wrong I might not have done anything but by my standards he's doing the wrong thing and listen you should listen to me because I consider myself to be somewhat of an expert on the matter right I can tell you about how things should be done. I can tell you everything that's true in the universe. And and I always just want to say to these people, why don't you just show me everything that's true in the universe? And if you really think that you know how it should be done, then why don't you just show me how it should be done? And oh, well, and, and here it comes. Here it comes. You ready for it? Well, Well, we're praying about it. Well, we're meeting and we're talking and, and, you know, when we're fasting and that's, that's where we're at right now, right? It's easy to pick apart someone, really anyone that is doing a lot by saying, well, they don't fast like we fast. They don't pray like we pray. Well, well, we're very serious, and they aren't as right as we're right, right? And, and yeah, maybe they're accomplishing a lot, right? Maybe the ground is quaking underneath their feet, right? God sure does seem to be doing a lot there. People seem to be, <clears throat> people seem to be, you know, born and growing, and it looks blessed. We love to tear down jonathan's when we feel insecure and spiritually stagnant like saul instead we should learn from them and we should be encouraged by them because god is still doing great things right and you can you can be this is kind of the two parts of it you can be a part of that Like these people are coming out of caves, they're coming out from behind enemy lines and they're being a part of it. Or you can critique it and you can condemn it. And you can say things like, well, they're violating, uh, you know, God's law. And they're really not. And you know that they're not. They're violating your preferences. And a lot of people violate your preferences. But who said your preferences were right? And who said what they're doing is wrong? And people do things differently, and I think that that's, that's a good thing. But be careful when people are just ruffling the feathers of your legalism. You know, and, and, and I, I, I remember hearing David Guzik talking to a student, and the student was criticizing David Guzik. And how arrogant can you be? Really, David Guzik's the director of a Bible college, has been a preacher for years. And, and I mean, the, the, the guy, he's just a... He's, he's incredible to me. I, I, I could hardly say a word when I'm around him, which is terrible because he, and Corinne knows, Corinne met him. He looks at you with this big smile, like waiting to hear from you. And I just look at him and I just, 
I got nothing. I just cry. <laughs> but but there was there was a student that that took issue with them, and he said, and I'll never forget it. He he said, I will, I'll apologize. He said I'll repent if if I've if I've sinned against you in some way. But if I've offended your legalism, I'm never going to repent of that. I'm going to be proud of that. And I'm going to carry that with me until the day I die. And I loved that. And that's true. And you know what? If if I've offended any of you in some way, uh, I, I'm certainly I'm certainly sorry. And I, I'm not as bold as David Guzik. If you want to talk to me about piping or or beers and restaurants, I don't know. If you want to talk to me about Bob Dylan or gambling, right? It's just, and I don't even gamble, right? So if you're, <laughs> if you're looking at me like, you know, I thought I saw you at Morongo, you're you're wrong. <laughs> but listen, it's just, it, there, Jonathan was just different. He wasn't wrong. It's different to try and take on an entire army by yourself. But it's not wrong to do that. It's different to eat ground honey. But it's not wrong to do that. And the nation was right to stand behind him and say, here's a man that's doing something great. Instead of trying to tear him down, why don't we try and stand behind him? Why don't we try and support him? And I think if churches did that with one another, boy, the world would really look at us a whole lot differently. I think that we become our own worst enemy because we look at so many other churches in the community and we say, well, God might be doing a work there, but that's not a valid work. And I'll tell you every reason why that's not a valid work. Well, he uses the the NIV instead of the King James Version. And God hasn't blessed the NIV. Do you know who translated the NIV? Christians didn't translate the NIV. I'm using the NIV. I like the NIV. You know, but we do these things and we try and intellectualize the work of God. You don't need to do that. It's just something where you look at a work and you say, this needs to be done and God wants to do this. I'm going to be a part of it. Find those people. Stand behind those people. See God using those people. Be a Jonathan. Be an armor bearer if you're not bold enough to be a Jonathan. Be the rest of the nation that comes out of hiding to stand behind Jonathan. And you know what's really great is you in that position can fend off Saul's that would threaten to strike down and kill Jonathan. You know, Jonathan's story could have ended right here. But a bunch of people that had just come out of hiding that were emboldened by the faith of this young man said, I'm going to stand behind him and I'm going to support him. And we need to do that as soon as we hear the words of Saul in our Christian community. When people would speak out against Jonathan's in the world that are just different, that are just weird, you know, that are eating ground honey. You could say, no, this is a good man. This is a godly man. And I'm going to see what God would do in the community as I support this man. All right? Let's go ahead and uh, pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it or the way that you, you can speak to us through it or the way that you can have something specific for each one of us individually. And I pray, God, that we would just stand together as a community. Lord, that we would support one another as brothers and sisters. Lord, as, as armor bearers of one another. Lord, that we would defend each other. Lord, that we wouldn't seek an opportunity to be critical or condemn each other. Lord, that we would exalt our brothers and sisters. That we would encourage them. That we would put our faith, undefiled by legalism, on display before them. Lord, that it would be infectious and catch in our community. Lord, that you would expand what you're doing in our midst, Lord, in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace, God, that you always want to be working and that you always extend a hand for us to join, Lord, for us to share with you, to partner with you, to learn from you. And Lord, for that, we do just praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.